Good morning, and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the Kimberly Killer, who went on a five-day murder spree in Australia. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. The Kimberley region in the north part of Western Australia is a stunning area. It's over 400,000 square kilometers or about 250,000 miles, and it's filled with steep-sided mountain ranges, abundant wildlife, and numerous flora and fauna. Between the months of May and October is the region's dry season. Tourists from around the world frequent this area during the dry season to hike, camp, fish, and just explore the area. Temperatures in this region can range from extremely warm days up to an exceeding 100 degrees and dropping as low as 32 degrees in some parts of the year. It's a remote area which can present dangers. Most travelers are made aware of the wildlife that can pose a threat as well as the extreme weather conditions and remoteness in the area. But in 1987, tourists were exposed to a threat they weren't expecting, a serial killer. This is a story about the Kimberly Killer. In 1987, Marcus Bolin was 70 years old. Him and his wife, Winifred, and their son, Lance Bolin, who was 40 at the time, and then Lance's wife, Joan, were traveling home to Perth in Australia. They were taking their time heading home, making a lot of stops along the way to camp and fish and really soak up the rest of their vacation. The morning of June 9th, 1987, around 9 a.m., Marcus and Lance headed out. They were going to go scout for a fishing area. They left where they were staying at the Wayside Inn in Caravan Park, which is located in the Northern Territory in Australia. They were going to go check out some locations around the Victoria River near Timber Creek, and they were going to find some spots and come back and get their wives and then spend the day fishing. So the wives were expecting them to be back in about an hour, two hours, not too long. Just enough time to like look around the area. Yeah, they were intending on... um, Like fishing, they were definitely wanting to come back and get the wives to spend the day together. So 11 o'clock, noon rolls around and Joan and Winifred are starting to get really concerned that their husbands had not made it back. And by afternoon, they decided that they needed to call the police to report them missing and make sure that nothing had happened. I think they were probably concerned about the area because it can be dangerous. There's a lot of physical features and then like wildlife that could pose a threat well and you said they were traveling so i'm not sure if this was an area that they were already familiar with or if this was an area that they may not have been as familiar with and that could have been lost easily that's a good point i'm not sure how often they had traveled there before this point so they could have just been lost too and getting lost in a remote area like that can be very dangerous also this would have been in the 1987 so it wasn't popular for everybody to be carrying cell phones around so it would have been very hard for if they were lost to be able to either map their way back to a main road but using their gps on their phone or actually call somebody for help that's a great point they did not have google maps (laughs) they probably didn't even have cell phones like you said no way to really get in touch and say hey we're okay we just got held up somewhere or even hey we're not okay we're lost come help you know i'm kind of it's good that They had the, I guess, relationship enough to know that, like, 
they wouldn't just not come back right away. They were like, something's wrong. They clearly knew because, you know, there's people where if they're an hour, two hours late, you don't even think anything of it because that's just how they are. That's like us when we're going places and we tell our friends we'll be there at noon and we're there like two, yeah, three. Just, you know, expect me within a five hour span. That'll work, right? It, it works. <laughs> Not rude or anything. No, it's just our personality. <laughs> but there's some people who are like, you want to be there at noon and they are going to be 100% punctual and they're going to really stick to that time. And if these people were like that, then their wives would have known it and would have been very concerned. Yeah, and I can just assume their husbands weren't the type of people to do that. So the police respond and they decide to go check out some of the popular fishing spots that are nearby to see if they can find any trace of Lance and Marcus. But they don't and it starts to become nighttime and the police aren't comfortable going out and searching as much at night because it's dangerous. And they were pretty convinced that Um, Lance and Marcus were probably okay. Maybe their car just broken down somewhere. They're like, we'll find them in the morning. So the police were pretty much just going to leave them out there overnight? That's what I gathered. I did kind of assume, I guess, when I was reading the articles that there were still a couple police officers, maybe kind of, or rangers even, out searching the area. But it wasn't as extensive as it had been during the daytime. Which probably led to a very sleepless night for Winifred and Joan. I probably would have been out there still searching if my husband was out there like in the middle of the wilderness. I probably would have said like screw the police I'll just risk getting eaten by a crocodile or something. Yeah and there are a lot of crocodiles in that area so maybe one would have snatched it up. On June 10th 1987 the next day police located Marcus's station wagon near the riverbed It had been abandoned and it appeared to be set on fire. So when you say set on fire, do you mean it like looked as if it had caught fire from like some sort of damage or like somebody had actually purposefully set it on fire? It had actually appeared that it had been set on fire, which I will get into later. They canvassed the area and they found the deceased bodies of Marcus and Lance near the car. They had been buried in shallow graves And both appear to have been shot in the back, and they were both also stripped of all their clothing. At the scene, investigators found two large patches of blood stains, drag marks in the sand, which led to the graves, shoe prints, and cartridge cases, presumably to the murder weapon. With all this evidence, investigators were able to piece together that shortly after Marcus and Lance had gotten out of their vehicle, the suspect surprised them. And it's likely he had been lying in wait for them. Were they on like a highly traveled road? Do you know? The best way I can answer that is that the whole area was pretty remote. We know that they weren't found near any of the popular fishing spots because the police had searched there the day before. I actually throughout this whole research situation had a hard time finding and pinpointing exactly where all the bodies were because they're just not necessarily in relation to places because it's out in the Australian bush and it's just very remote areas. Okay, because you just said that the suspect was most likely waiting for them. So I didn't know if he was just waiting in a remote area hoping somebody popped up or if he was waiting in a like more populated area, kind of just waiting for the perfect victim to come by. So I guess this is my conclusion of it is that 
He was in the area. It probably wasn't a super popular area where tourists went. And I don't know how extensive the police search was the night before. But I know of around, let's just say around here, there's places you can go visit where there's a lot of people go to this one spot. But then there's like this kind of other spot that people sometimes hit, but it's not as well known. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. After the suspect had ambushed the two men, he pointed his high-powered rifle at them and forced them to lie face down on the ground, and he ended up shooting them in the back, which killed them. He then stripped the victims of all of their clothing and took the clothing and put it inside Marcus's car. After this, he dragged their bodies near the riverbank and buried them in the shallow graves I'd mentioned earlier. Next, the suspect drove the victim's car nearby, dumped gasoline in it, and set it on fire before fleeing the scene. Which goes back to your question earlier. He definitely set it on fire. Police assume that he probably took their clothes off and put them in the car and burned it to try to get rid of any evidence he maybe had left on their clothing. Which would have been a smart way to get rid of his DNA on the bodies and things. Yeah. At this point, police just had no idea who could have committed the murders. They looked into Marcus and Lance's past, and there was just no suspects. They had no issues with anybody, and so police were really baffled and confused as to who committed the crimes. And did you say where Marcus and Lance were originally from? Perth. Which is also in Australia. Yes. How about how far away from it, from where they're at now, is Perth? Perth is pretty far from where they were at. Um, It's over on the southwestern side of Australia and western Australia on Google Maps from about Timber Creek. It's around 37 hour drive. So if it was somebody that had known them and was like familiar with them, they would have had to travel really far to commit this crime. Oh yeah, it would have been a big commitment. So at this point, the investigators just kind of alert the media and they try to warn people that there might be some type of killer in the area. It made big news and it it spread really quickly actually and kind of took on a life of its own. Flash forward to five days after Marcus and Lance Bolin were murdered, Philip Walkemeyer, age 26, his fiancee Julie Ann Warren, 25, and their friend Terry Bolt, who was 36, were camping in Western Australia on the Pentecost River near the town of Wyndham. I could not find an exact distance from where they were from the location of the Bullen murders to where these friends were camping, but it was at least 300 kilometers or just under 200 miles away. The three had heard about the murders, but they just really weren't concerned because of the distance and that it had been almost a week since the murders and nothing had happened. I personally probably would have been a little concerned, but that's just me. I mean, the distance, I can kind of agree with. If you're about 200 miles away from a crime that's happening, I'm not going to be concerned because like where we are, 200 miles is going to be a whole other state, basically. Yeah, well, and it was in a different territory, but no one believes that anything's going to happen to them. And they felt like it was a safe distance, assuming that that person was going to stay in that area if it were a serial killer, which we had no idea at this point. The time, though, doesn't really mean much for me because five days a week, a month, I mean, serial killers can sit dormant for as long as they want. My thought is, like, I know... 
I can sit here and say that it would worry me and I probably wouldn't go. But also, if I had people who were like, it's not a big deal, get over it, I'd probably be like, you're right, like I'm overreacting. You know, I don't think it's that. Maybe with what we know now and like looking back at it, it's a little bit different when you think about it. But for them in this situation, and if I was in that situation, I guess maybe I wouldn't 100% think about it that way. The three set up their camp in a picnic area about three kilometers or a little under two miles from the river, and they were joined by two of their friends, David McKenzie and Daniel Rowe. McKenzie, Walkemeyer, and Bull all worked together at the Department of Aviation in in Kununura, and I apologize if that's not completely how you say it, but this is where they all lived. They'd spent the 13th fishing and spending time together, and they eventually went to bed shortly before midnight. The next morning, the group had breakfast together, and then Mackenzie and Roe left to return home. This would have been a Sunday, but the other three decided to stay longer and spend the day fishing. And just like the people earlier in the story, they wanted to soak up their vacation, which, understandable. So a little ways down from where the friends were camping... Two men, Desmond Murphy and Brank Mujovich, had witnessed Mackenzie and Roe leaving the campsite. And when they left the campsite, they saw that all three of the remaining friends were still at the campsite and they reported that everything seemed fine. The two men fishing also noticed a white Toyota with red or pink rectangle shapes or lines on both sides of it and they saw that it had been parked in a dried up creek bed. Flash forward to about 6 p.m. that same day on June 14th, 1987, a truck driver was driving in the same area and noticed dark black smoke coming from and around the Pentecost River picnic area. He could tell that it was fuel smoke from the color of it and he continued to watch it as he drove as i mean i know i've done when you see a fire in the distance you're just not sure you're just kind of like huh and you're seeing if you can get closer maybe you know what i'm talking about yeah absolutely weren't we just doing that the other day yeah i think that did happen the other day as he was passing the picnic area a white vehicle passed him going down the road and he actually kind of had to pull off the road for the car to get by And he ended up describing it as a white Toyota Hilux with red flashes down the side. The truck driver also noticed that the plates were from Queensland. From what he could tell, the driver was a male of small build. What he didn't know was that he just caught a glimpse of the Kimberly killer. Monday, June 15th rolled around. And Mackenzie, the friend and co-worker of Philip Wachemeyer and Terry Bolt, noticed that the two had not made it into work. And he later found out that Julianne Warren also did not make it into her job that day either. He did a little bit further investigation to see what was going on with his friends. And after going and checking, none of them were at their homes either. He'd begun to worry and he was concerned for his friends and he went and found another one of the co-workers to go with him and they went back to the campsite that they had been at the previous days to see if their friends were still there. Mackenzie and his co-worker made their way to the campground and came across Walkemeyer's vehicle. It had been completely burnt with even the shrubbery around it scorched as well and this is when he kind of went into panic because obviously something's not right. Well and he knew about the other killings, right? From what I could tell, they all had known about them, yes. So it was probably very concerning when the car was burnt then, too. Oh, yeah. With his concern, Mackenzie decided to call the police, as most people would, 
Unless you're like Mary from our Velitska episode and you just want to check the chickens. Make sure the chickens are doing good. (laughs) Police arrived at the scene of the burnt vehicle and confirmed that the car had belonged to Wackemeyer. But then they were wondering, where was he? Where was his fiance and his friend? Were they nearby? Did something happen? And they like ran off, but they had no idea. Yeah. Three people missing and a burnt car is probably never a good sign. No, not at all. Inside the burnt car, there was a gas bottle that was empty and camping equipment that had belonged to the three people that were now missing. Police decided to go to the campsite, which was pretty close to where the car was, and kind of canvas the area and see if they can find anything. What they did find were spots of blood on the ground in the area, and soon after that, they discovered Julie Ann Warren's body. She was completely naked and lying face down about 500 meters away from the site where she had been camping along the edge of the Pentecost River. It wouldn't be until the following morning, June 16th, that the bodies of Philip Wackemeyer and Terry Bolt were located in the river. Were they naked as well? Yes, their bodies were found stripped naked as well. Investigators used evidence and interpretations to conclude that the killer likely watched the trio from a high ground nearby and waited until they were alone and most vulnerable. He then snuck up on them and opened fire. It's thought that Julie Ann was first shot and the other two had tried to flee, but unfortunately they just were not quick enough. They all had been shot to death and likely dragged into the river with hopes of animal predation hiding the evidence. At the campsite, investigators found shoe prints. The shoe prints were an exact match to the same shoe prints that were found at the bowling crime scene. So at this point, they're likely connecting them. We have similarities in the shoe prints, the burnt car, and the bodies being stripped of their clothing. Yeah, I think that's some pretty good pieces of evidence to definitely connect the two. Also present at the scene were five fired 223 cartridge casings and tire impressions that also matched tire impressions found at the first scene as well. So at this point, police are pretty much 100% connecting the two. Oh, yes, absolutely. And they're nervous because it's only been five days and he committed more murders, so they almost have like a spree killer on their hands. Well, and he traveled over 200 miles to commit this second set of murders. Yes, absolutely. Also, like the Boland murders, he put all their belongings and clothing in the car and then drove it a little ways away before setting it on fire. This suspect had been lying in wait in the Australian wilderness, staking out victims and hunting them down like animals. What was even more concerning is that the killer did not seem to have a victim type like you often see with serial killers. He had crossed age and gender lines and was blitzed attacking unsuspecting victims which is just such a horrifying way to kill people because there's no lead up to it they're not doing anything wrong they're just out camping and out of nowhere like no warning which is one of the more terrifying ones in my opinion yeah it's kind of like once again with israel keys where he didn't have a certain set of victims and he was just going after pretty much anybody and it was just really victims of opportunity yeah and it's just wrong place wrong time i guess Police and investigators continue searching for clues and alerting the public to be hyper aware, especially when out camping or hiking and fishing in the area. They began to set up roadblocks across the Kimberley region, stopping cars to warn them of the dangers and I think kind of looking for that white Toyota that kept getting reported. 
So more reports kept coming in about the vehicle sighting and they ended up with a pretty detailed description. It was a white Toyota Hilux 4Runner. It had a fiberglass canopy on the back and red or pink lines running down both sides of it. They also concluded that it was a man driving and it had Queensland plates that were green, white, and reflective. That's a pretty good description of the car. Oh, yeah. They definitely knew what they were looking for at this point. Had anybody, like, noticed any part of the license plate at this point? Any number or letter or anything? I did not see anything on them noticing the numbers. Just the color and, like, consistency. I said the reflectiveness of it. And I'm not actually sure. I've never seen a Queensland plate, so I don't know if the numbers and stuff are different than here in the U.S. So Erica and I looked it up. And they are pretty similar. It is kind of unfortunate that no one was able to get any numbers or letters from it because it's pretty evident. But, you know, that's if a car is driving past you and it takes you a minute to even register what you're looking at, it would be hard to see that. And if it's not something that you're concerned about, like if it's just a random vehicle that you're seeing past you in a certain area, you're not probably looking for the license. No, and I don't think they were out trying to hunt it down. Unlike the next person in our story, actually, on June 19th, 1987, a helicopter pilot, Peter Lutenager, was flying over the bushland near Fitzroy Crossing in the Kimberley region. He had heard about the murders and he also knew the make and model of the vehicle that police were searching for. So he kind of had an eye out for it. And he was he said he had been taking his time flying around, just kind of canvassing the area. And he spotted a vehicle that had been camouflaged by trees and bushes and stuff like that. And from what he could tell, it was a white Toyota 4Runner. And it was about 15 kilometers or about nine miles from Fitzroy Crossing. Like I said, he he knew what he was looking for. And he instantly flew his helicopter to the town, Fitzroy Crossing. And he had a bad feeling because they'd actually been preparing for an annual rodeo, which brought in a ton of tourists. And I think he was concerned that maybe the killer was going to try to strike there. I also thought it was kind of funny that he like flew over to Fitzroy Crossing to let them know, like, I assume that's more common over big areas like that where there's not as many roads and stuff. I can't imagine just like, all right, I'm going to fly my helicopter over to the police station real quick. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd probably around here drive to the police station if I wanted to tell them something. It's definitely quicker. Oh yeah, if I had a helicopter to fly around, I guess I probably would fly to the police station. But I I got a kick out of that. But yeah, he went over there and notified police and they sent out aircraft in the area, which is just another sign to how different it was in this area from where we're at because I don't think most of our police stations have aircraft around here. You don't need it. You can get to everywhere with roads and everything. Along with the police aircraft going to check out where this vehicle was and see if it was what they were looking for, police got together a tactical response group or a TRG to get ready to go to the area in case it was in fact the vehicle that the suspected murder had. The TRG team was quickly sent to the location, but they were told to be very cautious Either this was the killer, we know he's armed and dangerous, or it's just an unsuspecting tourist just like out in some area that's not frequented, which would be horrifying if you were just out there camping and this whole team comes up on you with guns and there's planes flying over top. So they're like, you need to be careful. Either way, it's a dicey situation. 
Yeah, that'd probably be really terrifying if you're just like <laughs> out hanging out, hunting or fishing or whatever, and this huge group of people just comes like after you and they're like, you're this killer. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> definitely just want this fish. <laughs> just want this. I'm just trying to get some dinner. <laughs> They thought the Taurus theory was more unlikely due to the vehicle being in an area which very few tourists frequented. But like I said, you have to be cautious. You can never be too careful. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Joseph Schwab was born in Western Germany in Sandburg on November 25th, 1960. He was considered to be a fairly introverted person, and he had very few friends. When he was 15 years old, he joined the Rifle Association in Pocking and remained in that association until 1981. Joseph was very interested in guns, and he actively divulged in all things related to him. In 1981, Joseph traveled to Adelaide in South Australia, where he lived for about three years. While he was there, he worked as a cabinet maker, which eventually proved to be not financially stable enough for him to sustain his lifestyle there. So he ended up going back to Germany. During his time in Australia, though, he had joined the Southern Cross Pistol Club and purchased various rifles, and he spent a lot of his free time there hunting wild pigs. So like I said, he moved back to Germany, and this was in 1984. And once he returned there, he began work as a security guard, which gave him access to a revolver for his job, as well as firearms training. He'd gotten into some trouble with the law in Germany for breaking and entering, theft, and trying to steal cars from people. According to his family doctor, he never displayed any signs of mental illnesses, though, and by all accounts, he seemed stable. On March 18, 1987, Joseph obtained about $5,400 worth of traveler's checks in Munich, and he departed for Australia about a month later, arriving in Brisbane on April 18, 1987. On April 21, 1987, he went to a bank in Brisbane and claimed to have lost all of his traveler's checks and was granted a cash advance of $1,000, which we find out was a lie because he ended up cashing his checks later. On April 22nd, Joseph rented a Toyota 4Runner from the Brisbane airport and traveled to a firearm shop where he purchased four firearms and ammunition cartridges to go with them. After this, his whereabouts are a little spotty, but here are some um, details we do know. Joseph purchased gas in Diamantina, Queensland on May 6, 1987. He then received a parking ticket three days later in Mount Isa. On May 20th, he had the front end of his vehicle repaired in Darwin, which is about 1,500 kilometers or about 900 miles away from Mount Isa. 
From there, there is a sighting of him in Carmer Plains in Point Stewart in the Northern Territory on June 4th, about 170 kilometers or about 100 miles, where a high number of buffalo had been shot and all their horns had been missing, which were later found in Joseph's vehicle. Then on June 9th, the day of the Bolin murders, Joseph was spotted at the Wayside Inn, which is actually the same inn that the Bolins were staying at. This was in the evening. The reason that actually his car was spotted, the Toyota 4Runner, the reason it was spotted was because the owner of the inn, Helen June Anderson, was actually told to be on the lookout for a stolen Toyota 4Runner that had um, Northern Territory plates, which the one she saw had Queensland, but she decided since the description matched otherwise to report it anyway. So it wasn't the stolen one we were looking for, but... So was he staying at the inn or was he just there for some random reason? It doesn't say anything about staying there, but from what I could tell, he was just sighted there. Flash forward in the story back to June 19th, around noon. Police and the TRG team are approaching the camouflage Toyota 4Runner about 15 kilometers or about nine miles away from the town of Fitzroy Crossing in the Australian bush. Police aircraft are flying over the location of the vehicle and confirm that it matches the description of the car in question. A perimeter around the area is blocked off and secured before the TRG team begins to move towards the vehicle. After they reach about 55 yards from it, they hear gunshots and they quickly dive down to cover themselves. But they kind of look around and they're not being shot at. And when they look... They can see a man wearing just camo pants, no shirt, no shoes, and he was firing at the police aircraft, which was kind of flying down low to get a good view and see if it was a car so they could relay that message back to the TRG team. So he probably had an idea that they were there for him. Yeah, I think he assumed he had no idea at this point that the team was approaching him and he's shooting at the aircraft. He had been sitting inside his vehicle on the driver's side, and when the airplanes were coming over, he opened up the door and began shooting at them. Sergeant Matson, who is part of the team, called out to the suspect at this point. He identifies himself as police and tells him to stop shooting, and then the suspect turns to them, the TRG team, and starts shooting at them. This was just the beginning to an all-out shooting war. During the first rounds of shooting, the rifle in the suspect's hands had been shot, which led him to lose it and lose his left thumb as well. And in response to this, he reaches into his vehicle and pulls out another weapon and then runs off west into the bush away from his vehicle. Which, it's kind of fair that if you're shooting at the police that you lose at least the thumb. Yeah, and it's a whole team shooting at him, so... At this point, he's, I think, gotten lucky. He hasn't lost more so far. After he runs into the bush, police fire tear gas near the vehicle, which catches the dry brush in the area on fire. So so now we have shooting coming from both directions, airplanes, aircraft flying over, and a fire is broken out. So as you can imagine, it's quite the scene. Yeah, it seemed like a scene from a movie, really. Yeah, I'm just like picturing it and it's chaotic. And and I don't know that it was necessarily like a circle of fire around the vehicle. It probably wasn't, but I don't know why. But in my head, that's what I imagine. We know that like at least around it in some area, the brush had caught fire, though. 
The suspect continued to fire at police from his new location, and he would intermediately stop for a few moments to reposition and change out his empty cartridge cases and then continue to shoot. They could not see the suspect because of all the smoke, the bush, and the fire, but they had an idea from the general direction of where the bulls were coming back at them, so they were just shooting in that area trying to subdue him. Officer Bob Brown is fearful of, I assume, either losing evidence or maybe the suspect getting back in his vehicle and fleeing, but he made his way to the Toyota 4Runner and ran through the flames and approached the vehicle, and he came up on the passenger side and looked in and made sure that the suspect wasn't in there, and he even looked to make sure there were no possible hostages inside as well, which at this point, they likely probably wouldn't still be okay, but luckily there weren't any in there. That's pretty brave and very determined of him to get to that vehicle or run through a fire. Oh yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, it pays off. He actually, once he gets in, he climbs over the driver's seat and the keys are still in the ignition and he's able to drive it out of the line of fire before it caught fire. So all this is going on. And then at some point, the shooting coming at the TRG team ceases. The team kind of looks around. They're like, did we get him? Is he hiding in line and wait? They're not sure. So they move in towards the general direction from where the bullets were coming from to try to find out what's going on. And then they see the suspect's body. He was laying face down in the dirt with a bullet wound through his back. And it actually came out through the front of him and he had died instantly. Which is kind of perfect since that's how he was killing his victims was a bullet wound his back. It's definitely ironic that he ended up dying the same way he was killing people. It was evident that he had been running away from police and he was attempting to fire in one location and then take off in another to deceive them from where he was and aim the shooting that way, but it didn't work for him and he ended up getting shot and dying. After all this, they decide to go take a look inside the vehicle to see what's in there and they find a pair of shoes which were presumably his since he was barefoot during all of this. They also find driver's licenses, credit cards, checkbooks, and other belongings that all had belonged to the five victims. Also in the vehicle were 10 buffalo horns, which if you remember, some of them had been found in an area shot and the horns removed. Among all this stuff in the vehicle was a passport which belonged to a German tourist named Joseph Schwab. Police found that the name matched documentation of the Toyota 4Runner's rental, and at this point they weren't sure if Joseph Schwab was the killer or if his credentials and identity had been stolen, and they had to wait until June 21st when fingerprints of the suspect revealed that he was the same guy. Guns and ammunition located with Schwab were later linked to all five of the Kimberly killings. Along with this evidence, police were able to match the shoes found in the rental vehicle to the prints found at both crime scenes, as well as matching all the tire tracks that were found. Without a doubt, Joseph Schwab had committed these five murders. However, because Schwab was killed during the police shootout, we were left with many questions. Did he have more victims? Was he planning on attacking the rodeo that was in Fitzroy Crossing that day? And perhaps the biggest one is why did he kill them? They seemingly had no connection and the crimes looked to be of just opportunity. Some people speculate that maybe he was killing them to rob them because he had taken all their credit cards and everything. Which we know that he kind of wanted money because 
he had to move back to Germany because he didn't have money. And then he got this decently large sum of money, that $5,400. And then he came back to Australia and then pretended that he lost those checks so that he could get an extra $1,000. So we know that this guy was kind of acting in a manner that would go along with somebody that was interested in robbing. Yeah, and he had purchased quite a few weapons and ammunition, so we knew that he was either collecting it all for something or he was planning maybe something bigger. And it's just unfortunate that we we just won't ever know that. That's the one really bad thing about a suspect being killed in like a shootout or some sort of situation like this where the police have no choice but to end up shooting the suspect. It's just the fact that there's never really any answers. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much. Thank you.